Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and thank you for joining me. Today, we speak research with James Wunsch, who's the Director of Social and Government Research for a company here in Australia called Faster Horses. James joined Faster Horses Consulting in 2019 as their head of its social and government division after previously working in the same field with Colmar Brunton, Ipsos and Eureka Strategic Research. He has over 20 years experience in the Australian federal government market as both a buyer and a supplier to government across nearly every portfolio at the federal level. He also has an MBA and has been granted a qualified practicing researcher status. James has been at the forefront of the evolution of market and social research during his career, pioneering online research communities in government with the Australian Tax Office, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, and the Royal Australian Mint. But just as we've moved from paper to phone to online data collection, he sees artificial intelligence and the effective use of big data as rapidly reshaping the industry, and not sometime in the future, but right now. He believes that the key for researchers lies in retaining their ability to connect to people in order to tell the clients true and evidence-based human story. He joins me in the studio, James Wunsch. Welcome to GovComs. Thanks, David. Great to be here. Mate, you look too young to be have done all of those things. Um, I started at age 10. No, no, I didn't. Um, thank you, and uh, I appreciate the uh, stretching the truth there, David. Um, no, it's been, a, it's been a long and interesting journey, and uh, certainly um, I think you know the beauty of this career is that there's a new challenge every day. Yeah. Um, what got you into it? Were you always, like, were you always a nosy kid? Uh, asking I, questions? I was, I was. I actually, uh, so I actually studied a, a journalism degree in, in, oh, to yeah? start my career and, and certainly uh, sort of fell into market research as a lot of people do, to be honest, in this sector. So um, was working... Is that right? People don't think I'm going to be a market researcher? Very few people grow up saying, I want to be a market <laughs> researcher. It's a, it, I know it's a shocking uh, thing to say, but uh, no, it's uh, it's sort of a, a skill set that sort of evolved. I was working at the, the ATO at the time in a sort of a editorial writing and editing capacity and... Uh, right. There was a spot in the market research team and they said, James, can you help out? And this was the period of the, the big tax reform campaign in, in 98, 99. Right. And uh, I said, yeah, I'll give it a go. I don't know much about it, but certainly uh, uh, loved it from day one, really speaking to sort of you know, businesses and, and general taxpayers about sort of their knowledge and attitudes towards the big reforms that were happening, the introduction of GST, etc. Um, and then, you know, using that, that information, that data to then drive intelligent marketing decisions and ensuring sort of we, we fostered the, the behaviour that we were seeking to, to get from, from businesses in the broad Australian community. So on the basis of that, I said, well, you know, I quite enjoy this. Um, Recognise that I needed some complementary skills. So, um, you know, economics and statistics in particular. So went did an MBA to sort of round out that skill set and, and sort of it's been on, onwards and upwards since then, David. But, uh, yeah, it's it never a dull moment. What skills do you need to be a good researcher? I think that, that curiosity, uh, you do need to sort of really sort of not look at things at face value but really 
have a hunger to sort of understand what, what's what's underneath the surface. You know, people might rationalise a behaviour. I do it because, you know, it's it's easy or it's cheaper. But really, is that the real rationale? And, and often it's the emotional cues that are driving behaviour that take a bit more nuancing to get to in terms of people just post-rationalising, well, I do behaviour X because of Y. Mm-hmm. So I really enjoy that challenge. I really enjoy trying to sort of move beyond just the, the surface level sort of information that people give us to really sort of drill down and, and understand what are those motivational postures that we need to be aware of in crafting our communications, in crafting our marketing pieces, etc. And so what's the what's the secret then to, to building that rapport that gives the people the comfort to be able to or and the confidence to share? Yeah, I think you need to sort of um, illustrate a degree of, you know, um, it's a pro, uh, you know, showing a bit of yourself is what I'm trying to say. So fundamentally, not just, you know, question, answer, question, answer, but sort of, you know, building that rapport is critical in a sort of one-on-one interview context. Mm-hmm. So sharing of yourself, um, you know, allowing them, you know, a, a safe environment to disclose what can often be quite personable and, and you know, uh, quite moving stories, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's really those stories and narratives that people tell us that allow us to understand what makes them tick? You know, it's not just sort of I do X because of Y, but sort of through listening to those narratives, we can sort of unpick or exactly sort of, you know, what's their what's their context, what's the history of sort of, you know, their involvement with, you know, um, Department X or Y, um, how has previous interactions shaped their views of that agency potentially and, and their willingness to engage and work with them in the future. So we've done that across our aspects of taxation. You know, we've, we've talked to visa applicants to sort of understand what makes them tick when they're applying for a visa can be a high-stress process, obviously. Um, and in doing so, we can sort of help government agencies really understand that, you know, one-size-fits-all service models are often not, not, the, not, mm. the, not the optimum. You know, if we can understand that, that you know, there are certain cohorts within a, a visa applicant base that are going to be ringing you every day, coming into your shop fronts every day and actually costing you a whole lot more to serve, well, it actually makes commercial sense to maybe sort of structure some some outbound comms to them to, to head off a lot of those those contact points and actually lessen the cost of managing that visa application process from start to finish over the longer term. So you've mentioned communications and marketing there a couple of times in your answers. Do you see that that's where the research connection piece is, is that really research is about driving uh, communication as opposed to, say, informing policy? I think it spans both. So certainly a lot of our work is communications focused and ensuring campaigns are driving the attitudinal and behavioural outcomes that that the, the government wants. Um, but often it's it's a it's it's broader than that. So it's exploring sort of okay, well policy settings are a certain way at, at this point of time. Are they are they right? Sort of let's do a bit exploratory piece where we understand okay, well um, let's speak to a, a cohort about their experience of a certain policy. What's working well for them? What are the rub points? You know, uh, are their needs being met? And if not, why not? Uh, and bringing that sort of broader picture to bear in terms of saying to, you know, back to our government clients, the lay of the land is this, you know, some of your, you know, these aspects of policy are working well, these are some potential areas for improvement and what what the, the, the public or affected stakeholders would like to see in terms of evolution of, of policy moving forward. So it does span both of those mm. communications and, and policy sort of realms. Do people like talking to government? Uh, yes, I mean, you know, we, we do incentivise people um, in a qualitative sense. So, we'll, we'll, you know, some of our st- standard tools are things like focus groups, one-on-one depth interviews, we might do online research communities. And generally, you know, you, you've got to sort of compensate people for their time. So we do offer some, some incentives for people to come and talk to us. 
that'll get them in the door. But often once they're in there, they, they relish the opportunity to be heard, listened to and tell mm. their story. So while originally they're coming in the door for the, you know, it's not a huge amount of money, might be 50 or $80 for, for an hour and a half of their time. By the time they leave, they're saying things like, that was really interesting. I actually mm. sort of never thought about this issue in such depth and I've really enjoyed, you know, contributing to this conversation today. And that's always a, a rewarding feeling to sort of leave someone that, with the perception of the work that we do. The dreaded market research phone call that sort of occasionally gets through and, you know, the charming young person on the end of the phone, I got one the other night and I just it was like, nah, click, didn't even get anywhere near it. Is, is that is it still valid or is it still a – obviously it's a method that works that people do actually take these calls. Yeah. Um, but I, I really – don't like it. I yeah. resent it. Yeah. And actually, the other tactic that I've started is to start to talk back to them, to ask questions of them, and start to yeah. almost annoy them. You know, and, and, reverse annoy them just for uh, just for juvenile bit. satisfaction. Exactly. Exactly. No. And look, it's a it's a human response. Everyone's time poor. Yeah. You get home from a long day at work. Yeah. Do I want to be spending 10, 15, 20 minutes on the yeah. phone answering a survey? No. no. I don't. I'm a researcher, and I say no as well. So. <laughs> Less and less, you know, phone surveys are, are still being utilised in, in certain studies where we sort of are needing to tap a, a really specific cohort. Um, but more and more we're doing online data collection these days. So these are sort of panel-based where people have opted in to sort of say, here's my profile. If there's a survey matching my profile, I'm happy to receive an online survey. And generally they get rewarded uh, insufficiently, I might say, for their time in doing an online survey. Right. Um, one thing Pastor Horses is very passionate about is is valuing people's time. You know, at the end of the day, if we don't get your time and your input to our studies, our ability to do our job is is severely curtailed. So yeah. it's got to be quid pro quo. So, you know, even in that online context, you know, by the time you sort of crunch the numbers, you know, if you're doing a ten or fifteen minute online survey, you might get the equivalent of like ten to fifteen Australian cents. Now, for me, that's not a fair value exchange. Mm. So what we're looking at is investing in technologies whereby people get a much better you know, financial recognition of their time. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, 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 an organisation we've invested in called UBDI, which stands for Universal Basic Data Income, okay. which is a new platform uh, that's just been uh, launched in Australia. And basically what it does is it's an app-based product. It allows you to register uh, your, your profile. Um, you then get asked to do not only short surveys for US $1 to $2 per survey, not sort of 10 to 15 Australian cents, mm. But beyond that, we're recognising, as per my, your introduction, that a lot of data is collected already. So asking you to recall an event, you know, how often have you exercised in the last month? Well, you know, I've got to think about that, and it's, it's not an easy question to answer. If we say, David, through this app, can we access your, your Fitbit data for the last month and give you US $3 in return for that? Okay. We don't even have to – the time impost on you is zero – will suck some of your data on an anonymised basis and then analyse that to sort of say, okay, you know, people of this age cohort um, typically are doing X much exercise. So we can start to do our work without that survey impost and that's really where we see the future of this industry headed, um, you know, going forward. Mm. We, in the introduction also, you know, and you mentioned the word there, data, uh, big data, Machine learning, artificial intelligence, you know, every galah in the pet shop's talking about it at the moment. And you say that it's, it's here now and relevant now. So 
Tell me that story. How is technology changing the market research game? Yeah, yeah. So basically, um, I, I think AI in the market research sector was sort of heralded maybe 10 years ago as, oh, we're all going to lose our jobs, big data is going to take over. It hasn't eventuated because it still requires that human element to sort of put frameworks in place to really sort of say, okay, you can set a machine to start learning about things, but it needs that very important starting point of, okay, what's the framework? What's the context? What am I learning cues that I'm looking for through this process? So um, we're, you know, we've invested in a, in a platform now that allows us to uh, do this at scale. So contact centres, you know, a lot of government agencies still run very large contact centres at yep. a very significant cost. Mm -hmm. And quite often that's then accompanied by a large survey program. So someone yep. will have an interaction with DHS, for example, and within sort of a week they're hit with a survey sort of asking what that experience was, you know, was about, were they satisfied, did they get the information they needed, etc. AI uh, can now take recordings, voice recordings from those interactions and analyse the sentiment using tone, using words, uh, using um, yeah, the, 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 the vibe of the call, for want of a better term, <laughs> yeah. to, to come up with a sentiment analysis. Okay. Which actually sort of is, you know, and we've done analysis where we've taken core recordings and compared them to a standard metric. Yeah. Net promoter scores are standard metric we use in a lot of our clients. Yeah. And done a comparison and the, the similar, similarities are, are, are striking. So okay. the, the technology has come a long way. It wasn't as accurate as it needed to be, but probably we're getting up to around 80% accuracy. If we can take all of those calls, you know, all those calls and, and analyse sentiment, we're reducing the impost on, on the punter. They don't need to be recontacted to ask how their experience was and reducing costs for the government agency in terms of, you know, needing to, to do those, those post-contact surveys. So we see a lot of, uh, you know, value you know, proposition in, in, in pursuing that sort of leveraging AI in those contexts. So the, so the jobs are not being attacked so much in, in quantum perhaps moving further up the value chain in that you still need that interpretation. People have still got to interpret what's going on, but perhaps what lower end data entry clerks and other people are maybe in, in a little bit more trouble. I, I, th I think so. And I think sort of government is needing to sort of, you know, uh, look at sort of, okay, with our call centre workforce, how are we looking to upskill, reskill, you know, transition them into sort of uh, not just, you know, that, that lower end administrative end, but sort of how can they seek to add value? Um, I noticed the launch of Service Australia. There was a, a video launched the other day and certainly um, the promise of sort of more proactive targeting of, of, of benefits. So utilising data to say it seems like you might be or you're returning to work, uh, potentially you're eligible for childcare benefit, you know, should we, can I help run a, run a sort of a, a, an analysis to see whether you're entitled to that kind of benefit moving forward. So mm. obviously government's very much in this space as well about leveraging the data they have to make predictive decisions in, in terms of sort of how they can better service you know, the, the Australian consumers moving forward. Where, where do you sit on privacy? Obviously, this is another of the very big issues that's wrapped around this whole data yep. um, story. Yeah, so critically important. Um, and back to the, the issue about UBDI. So one of the drivers of, of the founders of UBDI, which has originally come from the US, uh, is a need for people to take back control of their privacy. Mm. So a lot of people are very... Um, in the dark about exactly, oh, well, yeah, I'm on yeah. Facebook and I'm using social media. The, the, the amount of value that those organisations are generating from your data, A, without your knowledge, and B, without recompensing you for use of it, is astounding. And I think if the average Australian knew that, they might start to go, that doesn't quite make sense. What UBDI does is make it very transparent and says, we want to use your social media data, we want to use it for these analysis purposes, 
And if you let us do that on this one-off occasion, we'll give you US three dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a it's a much fairer value exchange. exchange. Yep, mm. yep. Which is done openly and transparently. Uh, all data is held in in a, a, a encrypted, secure vault on your own phone. So you might think, oh, I don't want my data going here, left, right, and centre. It actually doesn't leave your phone. The extraction process means that the anon- uh, anonymized data is taken from that vault on your phone mm-hmm. uh, and then used for analysis purposes. From your perspective, you're going, great, you know, um, the impost on you is minimal. I read it, yes, I'm willing to do that, except you get the US $3 into your rewards account, they get the data on an anonymised basis. It's a win-win for everyone as far as we're concerned. Mm. How, are you, how are you managing or how are these you know, providers managing this you know, this, these oceans of data that are being created, you know, multiple sensors, multiple, uh, multiple platforms and apps and, you know, as yep. you say, the, the, um, the Fitbits types of technology. You know, there's just so much that's being created. How is that impacting market research? Is it making it harder or is it making it better? Is it making it easier? I, th- I think what we're seeing is we're, we're using that data, using survey data in a complementary. So rather than sort of as I gave the example before asking you about your, you know, your fitness behaviour over the past month. Now, that puts a significant cognitive load on you, David. You go, <laughs> oh, I can't remember what I was doing last week, let alone a month ago, right? If we get that Fitbit data, we can sort of understand exactly what you've done over that period without you needing to recall it. Yeah. But it doesn't tell us... A, why you're motivated to act in that way or B, whether that's how you want to behave into the future or C, whether there's sort of training or support you might need to achieve your fitness goals. So so we see sort of the the use of these, you know, of of existing data, which is really uh, powerful, adding that with a a small survey component that then allows us to to sort of merge those two data sources together to really understand the full picture. So we understand David's actual behaviour and now we also understand through a short survey his mindset – what his goals might be, what sort of products he might be interested in using into the future potentially to sort of help him help him you know reach those fitness goals. Is it is it making it cheaper? It is making it cheaper. So obviously, if we have shorter surveys, you know the impost on you is is less. So you know the fair fair data exchange and fair value exchange is based on sort of you know if you're doing a fifteen minute survey, it might give you three dollars. If you're doing a five minute survey, we'll give you you know one US dollar. Um, obviously. The more we can get through passive data collection, the shorter our surveys can be. So for clients, the value proposition is a smaller research outlay to get a probably higher quality research outcome at the end mm. when we marry both that passive data and the survey data that's available to us. Have you got access to enough people to be able to analyse this data? Is there an, Are there enough people with these skills to be able to, one, create the data in, in a form that can be used and then analyse the data? Yeah, look, it's, it, data analysis in and of itself is, is sort of some, some skills. You know, you can learn sort of the right sort of statistical, statistical techniques to apply to get certain data outcomes, which help tell a story. But it's really sort of, that's part of the equation. Mm-hmm. What we need is people that have those skills, but also the skills to do the sense-making for the client. So it's all well and good to sort of be a data boffin and understand the numbers, but it's really sort of, a lot of our clients, some of them know numbers well, a lot of them don't. So it's about sort of, not just, okay, here are the numbers, but tell me what the numbers mean. Yeah, and tell me, so what question? Yeah, what do they mean mm-hmm. in terms of me needing to make a, a strategic decision moving forward mm-hmm. with confidence? Mm. So, so it's those those two skill sets that we look for, sort of when when hiring in our in our sector. Um, 
it is a you know it can be challenging to find the right people that have both of those sort of skill sets where we're looking to partner with local universities to to hire sort of you know graduates from you know streams including psychology business marketing etc um, and put them through our own training processes to ideally get them to a standard that we, you know they can start to sort of really add value for our clients at the end, end of the day is it growing the market research sector it's facing some challenges and and the reason for that is the 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 concept of big data and people you know 10 years ago it was like big data is going to come and just swallow the industry holus bolus mm. that hasn't happened um, I don't think it ever will happen but certainly um, the other side of the equation is sort of people sort of doing more DIY stuff so yeah, survey monkey right. government agencies Qualtrics MailChimp yeah. um, so that's good I always think you know well we'd like to work with clients as well to add value if you know if they're using at least some input from clients that's got to be a positive thing mm. and that's been a huge sea change I think over the past 10 years certainly um, you know, the rise of the digital transformation agency and, and the the rise of sort of human-centred design in, in designing services across government, I think has been a, a really positive thing going forward. Um, you know, I, I'm concerned that whether the people doing those roles have the right skill sets, you know, um, so, you know, user experience, being able to sort of build that rapport, you know, understand not just w watch what they're doing, but asking the right questions to understand why are you doing it in that manner or you're getting frustrated, just going to tell me about how you're thinking at the time when you're trying to sort of mm. perform that function on that website. So, you know, I, I think that um, the move towards human-centred design and, and, and user experience as, as key parts of developing new products and services in government is fantastic. I'd like to still see, ensure that there's rigour and, and, and that people performing those roles have the, the right mm. skills to really sort of generate value. Um, you know, I have seen... Government agencies say, oh, look, you know, focus groups, how hard can they be? And they'll go and run 10 we'll do, and yeah, they we'll come back ourselves. and they've got 10 transcripts and they say, what do we do now? Yeah. So it's not it's not something, you know, we are. it is a professional sector and the way we add value is really sort of understanding what's the challenge of the context, asking the right questions of the right people and then analysing that in a manner that sort of allows that sort of confidence to for the client to sort of say okay i know exactly how the land lies i know that if i take you know option a over option b these these are the advantages these, these are going to be the challenges etc so mm. um you know it's a, it's, a, it's a real sense making skill that, that that the industry um i think prides itself on and i don't think that'll be going away anytime soon no so if i this podcast our dear audience is you know generally people who work in government communications and you know they use research quite a bit What's your advice to them to get the best out of a market research company? You know, what what do they have to what do they have to do in preparation, um, and then what do they have to do through the engagement, and then what do they have to do after the engagement? Yeah, I think from experience, ninety percent of success in any market research project comes down to the, the front end. It really is defining. What's the, what's the business problem or what's the policy problem? Don't worry about what the research questions might be. We can sort of develop those. It's really understanding why is this piece of research being commissioned? Yeah. And if a client can work hard to really think about sort of, you know, what, what's the, the business intent here? What's the business question we're trying to resolve? And, and, and can then sort of articulate that well in a research brief to, a, to one or, or multiple research agencies in a competitive tender process. And, that, but, and, and in terms of that brief, how long? Like a page? No, oh, look, you know. A uh, sentence? <laughs> typically, we like to sort of, you know, three to four pages. I mean, the more detail you give us, the better. You know, one of the key challenges of our job is being a mental gymnast. So we might get a brief on something like energy efficiency of pool pumps. Right. right? Okay. Uh, I didn't know anything about that to begin. And then I have to actually, well, you know, 
who who has them or pool owners. Okay, well, where do pool owners live in Australia? Or are they more concentrated in, you know, sort of the in Queensland and New South Wales, you know, where pool ownership... So you start to use census data to understand sort of, okay, well, who we might speak to, where are they located? And then why do we need to speak to them? Okay, well, you know, the client might want to be asking sort of, well, if we want to introduce an energy efficiency rating scheme on pool pumps... Are people even going to see those? How, how do they purchase pool pumps? You know, when, when it goes bust, do they just ring up a pool person and say, can you come fix it? Is there a discussion about energy efficiency at all through that transaction? So from a, from, you know, putting a good brief together, sort of saying, you know, our challenges are these, the decisions we're looking to potentially take are these. Defining your target audience well is a critical one. So who do, you, who do we need to engage through this process? Mm. Um, and some of them, you know, are more challenging than others. So... Uh, if you've got any idea on the incidence of certain sort of people, whether they be a, a benefit recipient or a user of a government service or program, put that information in. It allows us to sort of think how easy or difficult it will be to sort of identify them and engage them in a research process. Um, I would always try and include some kind of budget. And I do that not because, uh, oh, great, we'll just pitch the budget. Yes, companies do that. But at least then you'll have four or five agencies competing at the same price point, which makes evaluating value for money a lot easier. You know, I've seen people say, we're not putting in a budget because we'd rather just sort of see what the market provides. Well, the yeah, problem is... So annoying. Yeah, yeah. And some agencies, so will, say, some agencies will say, here's a Rolls-Royce at X yeah. price, and others interpret, no, they're wanting a, a Toyota at X price, and yeah. good luck trying to evaluate yeah. sort of those It's a two. dopey approach. Yeah. It yeah. is a really dopey approach. Because that happens in pretty much every government tender process you know yeah. people go oh you know we want to keep our cards close to our chairs and what often can happen is is they do that and it's so hard to then compare they come yeah. back and say okay bid to this price yeah and yet they've done that first place <laughs> they're saving our time they're saving yeah. their time so it's a win-win did you hear that everyone so. did you hear that <laughs> so uh, you know it's up to then the agencies to sort of prove yeah you know, where's the value how is it's that money being correct. spent etc cetera, etc cetera. but at least if we're all doing it from a common a common price point, then mm. then you're going to have that that comparability from the, the client side. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so we've got our brief done. We've yep. got it. You know, we've got our context right, which is what you're saying. Is give us the detail, shape up the you know, describe to us what the problem is. Yep. And then what? So how can I be best practice from there? So I wouldn't be too prescriptive. So some people say we want a survey or we want focus groups. You know, if you're prescriptive, we'll, we'll sort of meet that meet that solution yep. but it's probably better to sort of say here's the problem here's the here's the sort of budget to got to solve it using your expertise what solution is going to be best for this project is it is it focus groups is it one-on-one -on -one depth interviews is it an online survey yep. is it an online research community you know it could be actually a combination of all those things but i think allowing the consultants to use their knowledge and and sort of say we think this model Will work for these reasons, yeah. um, you know, is, is the best way to best way to go. So, yeah. not being too prescriptive in what you want, and, and allowing companies to sort of say, you know, this is how we can solve your yeah, problem. Yeah, yep, 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 exactly. Okay. Exactly. So then, how I still want to be best practice, and we've now worked out how we're going to do it. So, what do I have to? Yep. How often, like, is it annoying if I'm ringing you all the time saying, have you done it yet? Are no, no. I mean, typically... Do, do I want to stay involved? Are you going to tell me or do we you just want know, me to wait? We'll, we'll shape that regarding how often you, or how much you want to be involved. Right. Quite often these days, government are not just looking for a service provider to come in and deliver a service and, and say, there's your report, here's our invoice, and off you go. It's, it's often about a, a bit of uh, skilling. Yeah, so, and that skills, skills knowledge transfer. So quite often, um, you know... Our clients will want to know about what we're doing, how we're doing it, why we're doing it in that way, so they can understand. And and 
And from a couple of perspectives, not only do you build their own knowledge and skills, but in case their superiors say, why are we doing it that way? And I don't quite understand, you know, why is the questionnaire structured like that? So, yep. you know, generally we will sort of say, let's touch base, depends on the length and, and, and the scope of a project, but traditionally we'll have like maybe a, a, a work in progress meeting once yep. a week where we say, okay. okay, where are we up to? This week we're developing the, the discussion guide for our focus groups. We're also developing the, the specifications for recruiting the people that we want involved. So those invariably get signed off by the client. So there's those contact points. They can sort of review what we've come up with and say, yeah, that, that seems pretty comprehensive or I think I'd like to sort of have, you know, you're probing more on this particular issue. Can you sort of maybe add to, you know, the, the number of questions on this particular topic so we can get a, a really robust feel there? Mm -hmm. um, I think you don't want to sort of go, oh, it's research and, and we've gone through this procurement and therefore we need to uh, ask everything of everyone mm -hmm. because you know, it, it, it actually becomes false economy. If you sort yeah. of, you know, have a 90-minute focus group but your, your discussion guide is like 12 pages long, mm. David, what do you think about this? Oh, yeah. I think X. Okay, what do you think about this now? Mm. It doesn't give you the depth. You really want to understand, you know, if, if you – that's that kind of question answer is more attuned to a, a survey, to be honest. But mm. focus groups are about trying to build that rapport and, and having enough – space in in the sessions to say oh david that's really interesting can you mm. expand a little bit more on you know why you think that you know is that based do others in the group share david's views on that or, or have a different perspective so mm. you've got to make sure there's that enough time to actually you know leverage the dynamism that comes with yeah. running a first group session mm. um so it's about sort of yes we want to make sure we, we sort of cover the key topics but you know, having a guy that goes, you know, for 12 pages and drills down into everything, mm. it's, it's just going to be Too hard. unwieldy to actually sort of, mm. you know, leverage. And, and often it's, you know, it's when you have that white space in a session where you start yeah. sort of being able to dig down those rabbit holes yeah. that you can really identify those gems yeah. of insight that actually can be, well, this is magic, you know. Yeah. We can hang an entire campaign yeah. off this insight that we've found from, from these groups. Okay. And just finally, best practice when it's over? Yeah, so... Pay your bill. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully. Um, on time. Look, again, it comes down to the start. So, you know, even at the start, we're asking sort of what are the research outputs you're looking for in terms of report? Does it need to be Word, PowerPoint? You, don't yeah. want, you know, do you want a podcast? What, what do you want as, as outputs from this process? Yeah. To ensure that there's no surprises. I mean, there's nothing worse than sort of us as researchers, you know, putting in blood, sweat and tears on a project and then sort of, you know, we get the outcomes and some stakeholder says, this isn't what I wanted or needed, you know. Yeah. That, you know truth be told, that's happened on occasion. You don't yeah. want it to happen very regularly. But what I've learned is you, you manage that at the front end. So it's really about having a very open dialogue at the front and trying to develop this no surprises mantra. You know, if you can work in collaboration and partnership over the course of a project, um, Projects always don't run perfectly smoothly. So if there's hiccups along the way, getting on the front foot, engaging the client, this has yeah. happened, what are we going to do about it? We suggest you do X or Y instead. And, and being open and honest, you know, well, that that's served me and, and, and our firm in good stead in terms of the, the working relationships we've cultivated with clients over the years. So I think that, um, yeah, the... At the end of the day, we want the research actioned. So what we love to do at the back end as well is not just, you know, here's the report, thanks very much, but mm. let's have a workshop, okay? Mm. So how do we sort of take this from a, a report that documents sort of who we spoke to, what we found, and what we think the implications are? Mm. Let's have a dialogue what about that. Next? Yeah, yeah. Let's mm. develop, a develop a strategy. Um, what are our options to, to, to leverage this moving forward? Mm. Um, that's the really rewarding part where we start to see people, thanks very much for the report, I'll stick it on the shelf. It really becomes a a living document that then shapes strategy, shapes service delivery, shapes policy. That That's, at the end of the day, why we do what we do. So 
really sort of looking beyond just the, the sort of here's a report to, to what can we do to help them action those results is, is a core part of our agenda. Yeah, excellent. James, thank you. That's very interesting. And I think market research, obviously, going through a, a challenging time, but interesting time and maybe even a better time, really. And, Indeed. And because that demand, you know, we, again, AI, machine learning, et cetera, et cetera, it's... Again, when you're planning the comms, it's really having those insights. It's really you need that raw material indeed, you know, to begin indeed. the storytelling, don't yeah, you? Having that evidence base, yeah. you know, robust, robust evidence base, correct, so that you're sort of you know targeting the right people with the right message through the right channels, etc., mm. is going to serve you and obviously in good stead across most most campaigns government delivers. Okay, so how can people get in contact with you? Yeah, so we're uh, we've got an office here in Canberra. Um, obviously, uh, if you Google faster horses, um, our website will come up. Um, and I'm more than happy to arrange a meeting or, or, or take a uh, you know, an email. Um, yep. You know. So Australian based, just doing work in Australia. We have listeners all over the world. Yeah, so. no, no. We're, so we have offices in in Canberra, Sydney, and Perth. So good geographic coverage across Australia, but also working with Asian clients um, okay. and even English clients. So our, our you know the ability to leverage technology these yeah. days to run you know. Research remotely is yeah. improving all the time. So, yeah, we'll take challenges regardless of where they are. Um, you know, we don't speak fluent language of every nation in the world. So, we, you know, there might be challenges we need to sort of build a bespoke solution to. But certainly, you know, we generally bring a can-do can -do attitude to begin with and we'll find a solution that we think will work and, and we can generally take a conversation forward from there. Excellent. James, thank you so much for coming into the studio today. And thanks to you, the audience, for coming back once again. Really enjoyed that conversation today and I love market research and you're always asked for market research, obviously, when you're in the content business because that's where the information is that's going to help you to make those choices about the stories to tell, as James said, the channels you use, the frequency, etc., etc. So anyway, great, great chat to James and thanks again, as I say to you, the audience, for coming back once again. Uh, we'll be back uh, in about two weeks' time. Um, but for the moment, uh, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.